Well, we want to welcome you again. If you're at the Franklin campus, thanks for your patience as we come to you by video from time to time. If you're watching live streaming, we're, we're so glad you're here in that way. If you're watching online later at another time, we're glad you're with us as well. Um, Cindy and I were on travel uh, last weekend, and it was amazing the number of people we heard from from around the country who will tune into fellowship and watch live streaming or later in the week. It's a fabulous ministry that our AV folks have put together. Um, we, in this room, experience it one way, but people across the globe are uh, tapping in and watching, and we're humbled by that, and it's a privilege to have that technology. I want to thank you all for your prayers, for the cards, for the emails, the, the well wishes, and so forth. Um, we were overwhelmed by your love and demonstration. For those of you who are new or newer, I had my fourth and, God willing, last back surgery, at least for a while, on May 8th. And um, um, I want to thank you for your prayers. And uh, as I report, I'm in the least amount of pain I have been in memory. So I thank God for... For that, I thank him for my great surgeon, but I also thank him for the great physician that he is. And uh, I know that it uh, may not last, but uh, this is the day the Lord's made, and we choose to be glad in it, not knowing any of our futures. But it's a strange thing to wake up with no pain after so many years of chronic pain. It's just hard to describe. Thanks to Bill and Lloyd, who've stepped up, stepped in, who've gone double duty over time, uh, while I was out, we were talking in between many meetings about what kind of church keeps going with this strange teaching team that we have. In a traditional model, if your senior pastor's out, you're out, and you're wondering what's going to happen, and there's never, nothing's missed. Yes, it's complex. Yes, it's, it's weird. We know that. Uh, but we love it, and it's a privilege to be part of that team, and I'm humbled by their stepping in without any hesitation whatsoever. Of course, they've evaporated since I came back, so <laughs> I have no idea where they are or when they're back, but uh, uh, it's your problem now, Michael. You're well. Get on with it. So, um, but it's a delight to co-labor with those guys. They make it not only fun, but they make it uh, uh, easy to minister alongside. Max Anders writes in... Um, copying from uh, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, where he tells of a story of trying to convince the Philadelphians that they should put lights in the streets at night. He sees it as an advantage both of protecting from crime as well as making it a little easier to navigate what would be cobblestone and certainly uneven surfaces around the city of Philadelphia. He was unable to convince them with his words with the value of putting what we would call street lights out. And so he went and purchased a lamp. He polished the glass. He put a lamp in it. And each night at twilight, he would light it and put it on a large pole above the front door of his home. Within a very short order, uh, neighbors would come out at night and stand under this glowing light. And they would feel both the ambiance of a nightlife as well as being safe from crime as well as from treacherously walking around those streets. Little by little, neighbors up and down his area began to buy lamps and put them on poles and put them over their front doors as well. And not long after, the city of Philadelphia 
uh, began to pass what we would call legislation, if you will, encouraging it's a good thing to light the streets at night for crime and for convenience. Samuel Johnson once wrote, example is more effective than teaching. So all of us who teach for a living, we're in trouble. Albert Schweitzer, of course, famously said, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It is the only thing. So if you teach for a living, uh, you have the challenge of not only saying words to and at people, but you have the challenge of living as an example of what you say, being consistent with what you do. Children become like their parents. Students become like their teachers. Perhaps there's no greater power on the planet than example. And in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 today, we will see an example that we're given, and we're to imitate this example. If you have a Bible, please open to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Uh, excuse me, Ephesians 5, verse 1, Ephesians 5, verse 1, and we'll look at the first six verses together today. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Remember the context of Ephesians. We've spent the first three chapters on building a foundation of what we believe, of being in Christ, and now we're looking at how we live practically as believers. So we're being, we're in Christ, and now we're living that life And it's highly applicational, but not absent from doctrine, as we will see today. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice as a fragrant aroma. The first thing we learn from this example is that you and I are to be imitators of God. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Mimetes is the word. We bring it into English a little bit careful, a little bit rough. Mimic is the word we'd use in English. But in a positive sense, we're, we're copying someone else. We're mimicking what they do. We're told to imitate God. How in the world do we imitate God? Fortunately, Paul gives us the answer to that as we continue. But let's take a step back to Leviticus 19. Be holy, for I am holy, God said. How in the world was the Old Testament believer to be holy because God was holy? And that instruction is nothing new. There are many places and ways we're told to be like God. Paul says to imitate me a number of times, referring to the way he lives life. Elders are to be examples to the flock, to live like they live. Well, here Paul tells us to imitate God. Now, this is not some abstract, unachievable thing. A number of clues in the text. First of all, is beloved children. The idea of a child mimicking his or her parent is nothing new to any parent in this room. Uh, Maybe you, like me, stood on the commode lid while your dad shaved, and you had a razor with no razor blade in it, and you lathered up and you pretended you were shaving. Girls would mimic their mother putting on makeup in front of her makeup mirror. Maybe you remember that brief blink in time when your children wanted to mimic you. They wanted to dress like you, look like you. It doesn't last very long. But a beloved child imitates their parent. Regarding imitating God, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, Paul's supreme argument, the highest level in all doctrine and in practice, the ultimate ideal 
to imitate God? What does a beloved child do to imitate God? Remember the what would Jesus do, the craze of you know, coffee mugs, cozies, uh, armbands, bracelets, gold. I mean, all the, some of you may still wear them. I, I still maintain it should have been WWJT, what would Jesus think? Well, how, how do we imitate God as beloved children? Well, fortunately, what he's doing is setting a standard here in verse 1 that's going to govern the whole chapter. You imitate God like a beloved child by walking in love. Look at the next phrase. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. We imitate God as beloved children by walking in love. Now, this love is described as a sacrificial love. It's the greatest example that God's given throughout all salvation history. Nothing before the life of Christ, nothing after the life of Christ has come close to what Christ has done when he died in our behalf, in our place, instead of us. As we know from Christ's teaching, uh, it's the greatest love that one man lays down his life for another. No greater love, Christ says. Well, Christ life didn't save a few people. Christ's life didn't save a couple of organ donations to some people who were on a waiting list. Christ's death is sufficient for all who by faith embrace and trust in Christ's work on Calvary in our place on our behalf instead of us. That's the greatest sacrifice ever given. You and I, if we love God, are to imitate God by a sacrificial love. This is the principle he's setting up. Now, we know Ephesians 5.25, perhaps too well, some of us, where it says, Husbands, love your wives, just also as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And when Cindy and I teach on marriage, and we have over the years, um, when I teach the men about the role as a husband, I spend a lot of time just on that phrase, to love your wife at just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Forget all the complexities and all the tripwires in that passage. Just camp on that. If you loved your wife as Christ loved the church and gave yourself up for her, what would your marriage be like? I've counseled couples for years in marriage counseling and couples counseling and premarriage counseling, and now I don't do it anymore. I'll let the professionals do it. Those who are smarter than me, better than me. But when I'm with a gentleman, when I'm with a guy, I will tell him, you know, as hard as it is to be a man in today's culture, you got to erase your view of what a leader is and line it up with what Scripture teaches, which is you love your, your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and stop right there. Just work on that one. Just work on that one. You accept her, you love her, you sacrifice, you put her needs before you. Your job is to get up going, how do I sacrificially love my wife, putting her wants, needs, desires, issues ahead of mine? That's hard for any person, male or female. But that's the job we're given, of course, powered by God's Spirit. Christ loved you and me so much, he died for you and me. Imitate God if you love him as a child. And the way he's speaking of it here is you will sacrificially love. And the bigger context of chapter 5 is marriage. But the principle, the high-level principle is love in God's terms looks nothing 
like the world's definition, which is where we will go. Now, I want you to turn back to just a page or two in your Bible, maybe not that far. Keep your hand at verse five, chapter 5, verse 2. But turn over to 4, verse 19 for just a second. Chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 19. Notice the contrast. 4.19, unbelievers have given themselves over, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. So an unbeliever throws their life into unbelief, impurity, immorality. They've given themselves over to that. But notice in chapter 5, verse 2, Christ gave himself up as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. The sinner who is unrepentant, unregenerate, doesn't know Christ, gives their life over to immorality, but Christ gave himself up. And Paul doesn't want us to miss the contrast. Imitating God means walking in love. It's walking in sacrificial love. And we're motivated because we love him as little children love their parents when they're young. Walking in love means self-sacrifice, not self-indulgence, which is what our culture worships. We are to imitate God, not an immoral world. Number one, we imitate God by walking in sacrificial love. We imitate God by walking in sacrificial love. Number two, he warns us don't walk in immorality. So he's given us the high-level view of sacrificial love. Then he says don't walk in immorality. Look at verses 3 and 4. But immorality or any impurity... Or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthy, filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now, I'm going to argue here that the first word immorality is the, the parent concept, if you will. And then five more terms are going to explain the wide range of what immorality means. Just a way of looking at it. Immorality being the parent word, and then five more words that explain the scope of what immorality looks like. The first word immorality is pornea. We all know por. We know pornography in our vernacular. It's far, far too common and rampant in our cultural context. Simply defined, it's a big, all-encompassing term, but pornea means any and all sexual activity outside the boundaries of a heterosexual monogamous marriage. Any and all sexual activity of any kind, of any definition and nuance, any and all outside the boundaries of a God-ordained heterosexual monogamous marriage. Now, to use these next five terms, he fills, colors it in a little bit. The next one is impurity. Literally, the word means refuse. Metaphorically, it's moral refuse. It's the idea of sexual sin. Um, remember, in Ephesus, in the first century, when Paul, during Acts, had visited Ephesus, it was Artemis the Great, it was Diana the goddess, and that goddess was an immoral structure. There was no small business. Remember Paul talks about in Ephesus? There was no small business in the making of idols and the perpetuation of craftsmen who made different exotic idols. Basically, they're making 3D porn. And selling that to Ephesians and other people who would travel to Ephesus. And so when the gospel blows up Ephesus, the magicians and the craftsmen want Paul and his people out of Ephesus because it's destroying their economy. 
So when Paul's writing this to the believers in Ephesians, don't forget that picture. And you know, it's not very different than today. And how pornography accounts for one of the largest generating e-commerce aspects of the web. No small profit in this business. Third, greed expands the problem with sin, especially sexual sin. Greed is what? It's insatiability. I always have in my mind that picture of one of the old Scrooge movies, uh, Dickens' uh, story, and he's counting all his money in his office on Christmas Eve. He's a miser, greedy, greedy guy. That's the picture I have in my mind. But greed is insatiability, here used for any sin, but here used for sexual sin. And this is why pornography is such a trap, because it never satisfies. If an affair or pornography or womanizing or same-sex attraction or all the different ways we parse sexuality today, if any of those were completely satisfying, we wouldn't continue to go on those roads. So we brand it an addiction. Scripture calls it greed. It's insatiable. Otherwise, you'd look at one pornographic image and never again. Because it would satisfy. This is the world's picture of love. Christ's love, God's love, is sacrificial love. Beloved children want to imitate God and love the way God wants them to love. He paints a picture of the world's definition of love, porneia being the parent word, impurity, greed. The next three we'll take together, filthiness, silly talk, and coarse jesting. And these sort of glom together in the idea. We all know when a joke goes over the edge, when it's a dirty joke, when it's a foul joke. We all know that. And the way you know it is you wouldn't tell your mother. You wouldn't tell your wife. You wouldn't tell your children. We know that line. Yes, there's some gray in there, innuendo. And we know that line. Clean humor is it's fun. Clean humor is great. James Montgomery Boyce writes, the God who made monkeys is not humorless. And I would amend that to say, go to the zoo and watch the people watching the monkeys. Far more entertaining than watching the monkeys, in my estimation. He's not without humor. Nothing. In fact, I think Christ had one of the greatest sense of humors on the planet, if we read him carefully. But sexual immorality, impurity, greed filthiness, coarse jesting, silly talk. It's the language, all, this, all these words put together to describe the idea of pornea being impure, immoral, filthy, coarse, jesting. He's putting That's the way the world defines love. So we're not to walk in immorality. Well, wait a minute, this is 2014 for goodness sakes. Everyone sleeps around. Everyone is involved in premarital sex. Many, many people struggle with same-sex attraction. Many people don't know what their gender is. As long as you don't hurt anyone, as long as it's two consenting adults, however many consenting adults, you're, you're being intolerant to hold these views. When we make our sexual identity who we are in the world, we have misaligned our identity with a definition the world has given us with a definition the Word has given us that you and I were made in the image of God. Our identity is not in a proclivity or a temptation. 
We're not Machiavellian. God made me Machiavellian. God made me a power-hungry person. God made me a womanizer. God made me a pedophile. God made me fill in the blank. Where do we stop? Those are temptations of the heart, their sins, their struggles. They're not our identity, for goodness sakes. But that's what the world tells us. Well, you can't legislate morality. To that, I would say, completely illogical. Every law is a moral law. A stop sign is a moral law. You stop or you will hurt other people. DUI is a moral law. You can't be under the influence of something and drive a vehicle. That's a more, every law is moral. So when people said they can't legislate morality, they haven't studied at all. You can't carry a concealed weapon and drink. That's a law, even in Tennessee. I'm sorry to advise you. There are moral laws. Every law is a moral law. You pay your taxes. That's a moral law. Don't pay your taxes and see how immoral it is. Look again at verse 3. But immorality, impurity, greed must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. To be named is to be identified with. These words have no... They should never be in the same sentence with the believer in Christ because that's your name. When our children were small, I would browbeat them again and again. Easleys tell the truth. Easleys don't lie. Easleys don't steal because you wear my name, and that reflects back on me. Maybe you tried to teach your children as I tried to teach my children those same things. Your name means everything. How much more being called Christian? What does that mean? I follow Christ. Not the world. Sure. Sometimes that's hard. Yes, sometimes you're outnumbered. No, most of the time you're outnumbered. But nevertheless, if you call yourself a believer in Christ, immorality, impurity, greed, lust, uh, greed must not even be named among the saints. Saints, of course, holy ones, the ones that were chosen out. It's not when you're died and some committee later says, oh, they were a saint. Saint means you were a chosen one. You're a holy one. You're part of the ecclesia. You're called out from the population. Ek, from, out of. Kaleo, called. You're called out to be a holy people, a royal nation, a chosen people of God's own promise. And yet we live in a world. Paul says in Verses 1 and 2, imitate God. Imitate God by sacrificial love because that's what a beloved child does. Don't love the way the world, quote, loves because the world loves immorally, impurely, coarsely, jesting, changing things. The antidote is given, but rather giving thanks, which sounds at first reading kind of odd. But when we move from self-satisfying to self-gratification to self-pleasure to giving thanks, we've changed a lot about the way we look at life. Because the beloved child who sacrificially loves others because we imitate God is a thankful person and realizes we deserve nothing but hell and he's given us heaven. We deserve nothing but condemnation, but he's given us grace and forgiveness of our sins. And we should be the most thankful people on the planet. For everyone and everything. A friend of mine operates under the theory you can never say thank you too much. Especially in a thankless culture. 
Bob Deffenbaugh writes, if our society has taught us that immorality is making love, the Bible exposes this as a lie. Immorality is never an expression of love. It is an expression of lust. Immorality is never the work of the spirit. It is the fruit of the flesh. Immorality is not to be practiced by the saints. It is not to be tolerated even among the saints. Love is defined in terms of sacrifice. And to imitate the love which our Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated in his sacrifice for sinners at Calvary, we see in this text a clear grasp of what Christian love is all about. It is not about self-gratification, but it is about self-sacrifice to God's glory. If we're going to imitate God, we have to do it on God's terms. God's terms in this text are we love sacrificially. We put others in front of us, other needs before our needs. If we live under that operation, we're children who love our Father. Not like the world defines love, immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so forth. So number one, imitate God by walking in love, sacrificial love. Number two, don't walk in an immorality. And third, a very stern warning, verses 5 and 6. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Note those, empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. A lot here, let me try to summarize it. First of all, we have to ask and answer what this inheritance is about. The inheritance of Christ and God. Now, inheritance as a word term can mean two things. It can mean salvation or it can mean reward. Inheritance generally means salvation. So if you're inheriting the kingdom of God, you have inherited salvation. There is a sense in which one can argue we're also inheriting as a reward of good works. So when you approach this text and read it, first of all, we need to be reminded we cannot lose our salvation. But the text is saying no immoral or impure or covetous on and on has an inheritance Is the text saying they're not saved, or is the text saying they don't receive reward? And this is where a little Bible study methodology comes into play. And the first thing you do is you see what Paul is saying in the context of the book. Now, if you see that last phrase, sons of disobedience, it really is literally sons of disbelief. And if you turn over about a page or two in your Bible to Ephesians 2.2, By the way, if you have cross-references in your Bible, little ABCs, tiny little ABCs, one, two, threes, there probably is a cross-reference from 5, 6 over to 2, 2, and you want to check those once in a while because they're very helpful. Ephesians 2, 2 gives us the time that phrase is used by Paul in the same letter. So how Paul writes in a context tells us a lot about what he means. 2-2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. He's talking about the Ephesians before they knew Christ, which you formerly walked, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. He's clearly talking about those who do not know Christ before you knew Christ and the spirit working in those who are now still in disbelief. Now, if you look back at uh, 5-6, see how Paul uses it again. Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these things, which he's just listed, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disbelief. So now we have a quandary. Can the wrath of God come upon believers? Notice he doesn't say the wrath of God comes upon their reward or their inheritance or their good works. He says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He's talking about people here. Yes, in 1 Corinthians 3, we have the testing of our works, and our good works will be measured and tested as though it were by fire, and what remains is our reward. This text is not talking about reward. This text, I would argue, inheritance means salvation. So, is Paul saying a person who lives in immorality, lives in impurity, that is their definition. They live in that. They practice it. It's their way of life. Are they saved? You and I can't answer a person's soul, but what Paul is saying here is a very stern warning, and I believe what Paul is saying, the wrath of God will come upon them unless, of course, they repent, unless, of course, they change. If they identify with that, that is their way of life, that's the way they define love, they're in trouble, and it's a dangerous thing. The warning of immorality, greed, and purity is heightened in 1 Corinthians 6. If you're a note taker or a person who studies your Bible in some depth, 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 11 have very similar themes. And what we find there is added injury, insult to injury, because he goes on to say that they were not washed, not sanctified, and not justified. Clearly, they're not believers. And that sure and certain wrath of God is waiting for any and all who do not trust Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. Our context is, if we love God, we imitate him. We imitate him with a sacrificial love, not the way the world defines love. And Paul takes it even further to warn people, if you don't know Christ and you practice and live in these things and you're proud about them and you're out about them and your identity is secured to them, you're more than likely not related to Christ. Again, we can't measure another person's relationship to Christ. had a line of friends last night asking me these hard questions about their life, a friend's life, and so forth. Let me just say this. All believers can go off into sin. Not, not one person in this room is not one or two weeks away from destroying their life. We all deserve hell, and we're all on the edge at all times. Walking close to Christ is the only antidote that keeps us together. Not legalism of do's and don'ts. Staying really close to Christ. I can't measure a person, and nor should I judge a person. But when they're angry, and they're visceral, and their identity is tied into this, and their rights become their little gods, the question is, do they love God or themselves? They may say all the right things, and that will be one left for God, not for you and me. We are to love them. We are to love people that disagree with us, but we're not to cow down or be... Listen, maybe you read stuff and go online, and and you're well-versed in all these. If you're not in a local church that teaches what I just taught, you're never going to hear this anywhere else. And... Your, Paul, your problem, you can have a problem with me. That's okay, I'll get over it. Your real problem's with God and Paul. The world is telling us one thing. The Word of God is telling us something very different. Why do I say it all the time? Don't let the world teach you theology. 
Don't let people that don't know God tell you what God thinks. Don't let people that have no interest in Christ tell you what a Christian should be like. Learn to love sacrificially. Learn to stand firm on your beliefs. Learn to smile at the camera, as it were. Because a day could be coming where we will not only be the minority, we will be vilified and persecuted for such views. So you better know in whom you believe and whom you have been saved and whom you are secured because the world's never going to be our friend. Paul goes on to say these are empty words. They have no meaning. The unregenerate, unbelieving mind should never weigh over God's word. God's word, God's spirit, God's people. That's where we have our grounding, not from the world. Well, what's the passage saying? Imitate God by walking in sacrificial love. Don't love the way the world loves, but imitate God in sacrificial love. So what? Simple four-word question that keeps me going a lot. Do you love God? Big question. How do you measure it? Hmm? From this passage, we know a couple of things. We love God if we love others sacrificially. We love God if we put their needs before ours. We love God if we're interested in pleasing the Father, not pleasing ourselves. We love God if our life isn't just about making my life easier, but following Christ faithfully. If I say I love God, propositional truth, there should be some practical outworking of that. And we begin it here in chapter 5 in an enormous way, and it becomes very practical in the weeks ahead. This is a foundational piece. Sacrificial love is not the way the world loves. C.S. Lewis wrote, When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. You see, the closer you walk to Christ, the closer you stay with God's word and God's spirit and God's people, the more you align yourself with truth, then these things take on a whole new meaning, not the way the world has taught us. I ask you to close your eyes and we'll pray as we conclude this morning. And I want... This is between you and Christ. And before we pray, let me just say, he's not mad at you. If you're not loving Christ the way you want to, he's not angry with you. He loves you. He died for you. Don't ever forget it. Nothing you can ever do will change that he loves you. Father, Help us imitate you by loving sacrificially. Help us to turn away from the immoral, the impure, the coarse, the language. Help us to be the most thankful people on the planet because as we're thankful and humble and have gratitude for what you've given, not what we've deserved, it moves us and pulls us away from the world's view of love. Father, as we walk by faith in your word, empowered by your spirit, encouraged by your people, 
May we find the place where pleasing you is more important than pleasing self, and we will wonder why it took us so long to get here. May the things of the world grow strangely dim as we love you the way you've designed. We love you, Christ Jesus. Help us to love you well. In your name we ask and pray, amen. God bless. Have a great week.